Alright, what is up, all you good, beautiful, wonderful citizens of Crip Nation? It's your host, Bryce Paul, and today I'm not joined by my compadre, Pizza Mind. He is MIA. Uh, he's actually in Texas right now. Um, but we have a special announcement. Uh, if you guys have been tuning in, you will know that we have the Crypto 2020 Summit that we are hosting. Uh, this is going to be January 29th to January 31st. We got over 60 of the biggest, baddest speakers in crypto presenting on their projections for 2020, what their projects are going to be doing, um, all sorts of fun forecasts. It's going to really be amazing. And the best part of it all is it's free and it is online. So go ahead to www.crypto2020summit.com and register for your free ticket. And we hope to see you there. And so without further ado, we're bringing on today Brandon Isles, uh, who's the CTO and co-founder of Ampleforth. Brandon, welcome to the show. Thanks, Bryce. Happy to be here. We are so stoked to dive into Ampleforth. I've, uh, I first heard about you guys when you guys were doing the IEO on Bitfinex, because correct me if I'm wrong, but you were the very first IEO on Bitfinex. That's right. We were. Yeah, we, we did the IEO back in June. We were the first project on the Bitfinex platform. And so I think because so much marketing happens around those events, that's uh, the first time a lot of people encountered us. Uh, but really, we've been working on this project um, since the beginning of 2018. Um, okay. So we've, we've been on this for a while, but it was um, exciting to finally kind of be more public about what we're working on. Amazing. And, and you know, before we even get into what Ampleforth is, I think a lot of people probably haven't even heard the term IEO. A lot of people have ter- heard ICO, but maybe you could talk a little bit, you know, before we dive into the project about what a IEO is um, in comparison to an ICO and why they're important. Yeah, no, definitely. So an IEO was developed as an alternative to the ICOs, the initial coin offerings, um, and it was meant mostly to address some of the difficulties or shortcomings of the IEO or the, of the ICOs that projects faced. Uh, so the biggest difference between an ICO and an IEO is that the IEO, which is an exchange offering, is done in collaboration with an exchange, right? Um, so uh, because you do it with the exchange platform, then there's a certain amount of vetting that they do for the projects that they choose to work with. Um, and then also there's uh, a guaranteed path to listing after the offering takes place. Um, so for the ICO, these were done mostly um, without following a lot of the regulations in place. So they were just sort of um, taking money from anyone who was able to make cryptographic payments. Um, and then that was often used to fund the development of projects in the future. And you didn't really know if they would ever be finished or go live or get listed. So they'd be traded in the future um, with the IEO. Um, they go through all of the normal, you know, anti-money laundering regulations, um, the know your customer regulations. Um, it happens on a very defined process, and then you're listed, you know, very quickly afterwards. That's awesome. That that makes a lot of sense, and it kind of takes us from the wild west just to more of the, you know, pioneered west. I guess now that you have the exchanges vetting you. I think that's the idea. Yeah. Uh, cool. The other big plus of an IEO versus ICO is that um, you have a partner in marketing with, and so it's much easier to get the word out of the project um, leading up to the event. So I think from a project's perspective, that's another big plus. And then just kind of out of personal curiosity, what was like uh, the raise? What was the market cap that you guys raised at? Kind of what did the token first start trading at? Um, yeah. So see, we we completed our our 
offering. It was very successful. Um, we sold out in 11 seconds and we sold a $5 million worth of tokens at a, a total market of 50 million, right? So we started with a total um, market cap of $1 per token, uh, 50 million. Oh, okay, cool. Right. Very interesting. And, and what uh, was that process yeah. pretty, pretty good? You liked doing it with them. And I mean, you guys were the first, so were there some kinks that you guys had to work out? Um, so some of it was because it was the first project on that platform. We, some of it was figured out as you go. Um, you know, luckily we have some experienced people on our team who are familiar with this process and have seen it before. And so we were able to, uh, you know, avoid a lot of the pitfalls. I think, um, in terms of working with Bifnex, Bifnex is a, a really great partner. Um, we have very few complaints about working with them. It was very smooth. Um, they were very supportive. Um, they were they helped us you know along the way. Um, uh, yeah, I've heard that a lot of the you know deals with other platforms have, are often very complicated. But what we had going with uh, Bitfinex was very straightforward and friendly. I think to both us as a project and then them as a platform as well. Yeah, I'm I'm a huge fan of the whole team at Bitfinex. We're actually having Paolo join us. Uh, Paolo Arduino, the CTO of Bitfinex, he's going to be on the show in a couple of weeks. Um, so I'll tell him you say what's up. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Yeah, Paolo, Paolo is great. He's um, super smart, uh, kind of behind the scenes. He's a CTO, but he's actually very hands-on. Mm. No question there. I, I definitely feel like Bitfinex uh, is some of the smartest guys in the room. You know, quote unquote, smartest guys in the room. You know, they've been pioneers of so many critical pieces of crypto, and so the fact that they saw did you reach out to them or did they reach out to you because like the fact that you guys partnered up just goes to show like you know compliments to you guys that some other extremely smart guys wanted to be you know in cahoots or you know working with you guys essentially oh thanks yeah um so yeah so one funny thing about bitfinex that people don't realize is how small they are they're actually a very very lean organization a small number of people who have been able to do a lot of work it seems when you look at it from the outside um, they reached out to us initially, actually. Oh, so wow. I was just sitting at my desk in my office and I got a random message over telegram from this guy, Henry, who said he was at Bitfinex and was asking if he wanted to talk. And you're like, and, I uh, get a million spam messages it, on, exactly. on telegram a day. Right. Ignore. <laughs> um, but I happened to respond to this one and it turned out to be real. And so we started chatting, um, and it just sort of went from there. This was way before they had announced any kind of, um, IEO platform. So this was, you know, earlier in 2019 this year. Um, and then it was, it was a sort of gradual process where we just sort of got to know each other over time. But that's how it started. So what do you think that they saw in you that was so unique? Um, so I think there were, there were a few things that they liked about us. One was that we're such a unique kind of asset that we'll probably get into later. Um, we're a different take on a stable coin where we're not exactly a stable coin, but we have some things in common. Um, we're overtly a monetary asset. Um, I think they also recognize the strength of our team. We've got some really strong uh, engineers and you know founding team here. Um, we've stayed pretty lean and small, sort of similar to the way they've designed their organization. Um, also, we've got some really great advisors. You know, people who um, have really strong um, in other areas like economics, um, and I think they appreciated that as well. I will definitely uh, second that statement that you guys are extremely unique. And, you know, I personally am a holder of Ampleforth. And one of the things that Ampleforth does are these Ample tokens or Amples, you call them, right? Amples. So Ampleforth is the name of the protocol. And then Ample is the name of the token. Perfect. 
So one day I'll wake up and I'll have, you know, a thousand tokens. The next day I'll wake up, I might have 997 tokens. The next day I'll wake up and I'll have a thousand and ten tokens. So this is the only cryptocurrency in the world that has an elastic supply um, and that actually takes your balance and kind of rebalances every day and, and targets a price. So I want to get into, uh, you know, why, why do you guys choose that? How does that work? Like what the heck is going on? Yeah, that's really the, one of the unique things about this asset is that, um, for, for most, you know, cryptocurrencies, the price fluctuates, but for Ample's, you know, both the price and the supply might fluctuate. Um, and so, yeah, so the, the purpose of, of, Ampleforth, the protocol, is to create a sort of monetary asset uh, similar to Bitcoin. Um, but unlike Bitcoin, it has an elastic supply. So it can adjust its total supply to um, onto the needs of the marketplace. Um, so for example, if, uh, if the Ample token is trading above its price and the monetary policy, um, you know, these are the rules of the system encoded uh, into the blockchain itself. Um, decides to increase the supply. Uh, if the token is trading below the target price, then the rules determine it needs to decrease the supply. And so, um, so that, you know, uh, changing supply leads to the you know, elasticity of the system. Uh, but not just that, sort of the unique way in which we adjust the supply is that all the new tokens that get added or removed um, go directly to all of the people on the network. Uh, proportionally to what they what they hold, uh, so what this means is that there's there's no special class of users. Everyone is in the same boat together. Um, no individual or entity uh, you know, extracts profits from the minting of of the tokens of, of the money supply, um, and then everyone simultaneously bears the same risk of the system. There's so many implications here um, for you know you know, portfolio, like the science between or behind portfolio management and allocation and stuff, because, you know, cryptocurrencies are all so tightly correlated. Um, they all move the same, right? When Bitcoin pumps and mm -hmm. you know, all the altcoins, it's like extremely correlated. And so now you have an asset that feels like it's a lot different. Uh, is that right? What was the um, goal? I should say, like, why'd you guys do this? What was the goal to make this? Right. So, so the goal, was to create a new kind of uh, monetary instrument that could one day become a replacement for central bank money, um, you know, a replacement for base money. Um, we looked at, uh, you know, Bitcoin, um, and we thought Bitcoin was a new piece of technology. They had uh, figured out a way to engineer scarcity uh, where no one had really been able to do that before. And so this is an and incredible breakthrough. Not, and that's not the goal of... Uh, of Ampleforth, just to be clear, people are probably like, well, you know, crypto is only valuable because it's scarce and it's this. And then you guys come, well, there's other applications of, of cryptocurrency. You're not competing with crypto, just to be clear, or you're not competing with Bitcoin. I would say we're not competing with Bitcoin necessarily. Yeah. I'd say we're much a better companion to Bitcoin. Um, so we are also scarce in the, in the way that um, the total number of tokens are controlled deterministically, not by us, not by any other organization. Um, and so that is a sort of um, you know, algorith algorithmically enforced scarcity. And, and Bitcoin also has algorithmically enforced scarcity. It's just a very simple function. It has a maximum supply cap of 21 million. So it will never go above that. 
Um, and so when we were starting this project, Ampleforth, we were looking at you know uh, the space that was there at the time, and Bitcoin was great, but it wasn't able to uh, respond to the economy or the underlying market in any way. And so it essentially it had to a digital form of gold, which which is good and valuable. You know, gold has a seven trillion dollar give or take market cap in the global economy, um, but we have we've built monetary systems on top of gold in the past and we've seen um, how it works and doesn't work. You know, we, we moved off of that explicitly um, in the Nixon administration. This was a long time coming even up until then for very good reasons. And so when we designed Ampleforth, we wanted a, a similar sort of, uh, you know, digitally scarce um, asset but that wouldn't fall to the same deflationary pitfalls that you know, other fixed supply assets like gold or Bitcoin had up until then, right? So, so that's the long-term goal. But uh, the short-term goal up until we get to that point, you know, it's going to be a long time before Ampleforth could be used. Um, anything like a sort of or uh, you know, companion to gold. Uh, so, while we're still small and kind of a new asset, um, what makes us interesting until we get there is that because Ample's Act according to different rule sets, right? So we have uh, the monetary sub monetary supply policy that's encoded um, on chain. Um, because Ample follows different rules, we expect it will move differently in the marketplace and be um, you know further decoupled, more less correlated to other digital assets, which is on its own just extremely valuable. Um, you know, it's a great way to diversify a portfolio because now. Uh, you know, when the market starts to move one way, you could have amples and they'll generally probably be unaffected by how Bitcoin is moving or how uh, Ethereum is moving because the supply changes and, you know, the prices also change. So the, the volume, it's trying to target a certain price, which is the current price, right? And so if it goes 5% above or 5% below, it adjusts the supply or like, how does that whole thing work? Right. Yeah. So um, with within the policy, there's uh, something called a price target. So the price target right now is the, the US dollar. Um, and so the goal of them is to find an equilibrium such that one ample um, equals $1 in the marketplace. Um, so the, the policy can uh, control the supply, um, but it can't necessarily control the price directly. Only the market can, can decide the price. Um, and so it tries to find the price equilibrium by adjusting the supply. So long-term, it finds some sort of um, you know, equilibrium value. Um, so the price target is uh, the U.S. dollar. Specifically, it's the 2019 U.S. dollar. So it takes in, as one piece of input, um, a CPI number. So this is a consumer price index. Um, it roughly equals um, you know, the cost of living. Um, and so... Uh, as the cost of living increases or decreases, or the value of the U.S. dollar increases or decreases, uh, the system compensates for that. <clears throat> so, you know, five years from now, one ample might be worth a dollar and nine cents, right? Because the value of the U.S. dollar goes down naturally over time uh, due to inflation, um, and so ideally, one ample will be immune to that. Um, so, while it's targeting, you know, basically a dollar today, it might target slightly higher or different value uh, tomorrow as it's denominated in the U S dollar. That's wild. That's why what's your, what's the grand vision for amples? Cause I kind of feel like 
its main purpose is to diversify like collateral or, you know, be able to use it to hedge risk. But was that always the, the grand vision? I'd say that wasn't necessarily the, the grand vision, but it's an interesting process that allows us to get there. Right. So, um, so the project Ample Fourth Interesting because it will look and act differently um, over the course of this life cycle. Um, so, in the short term, you know, we're a small cap asset, you know, a small market cap. Um, and so there's, you know, a, a potential for growth, you know, just as there is with, as there was with Bitcoin in its early days. Um, in the medium term, we expect that it will move differently and be uncorrelated to other assets, which makes it very useful for portfolio diversification. Um, and then, you know, right along with that, we think that it will be very interesting as a sort of asset um, for applications like, um, you know, decentralized banks like um, MakerDAO or, you know, anything similar like that, you know, even potentially you know, something like Libra. Um, oh, cool. So, as an example, say you're say you're a maker or reserve or some project like this, right? So you have a, a stable coin that's backed by some collateral. Um, you want to diversify your collateral as much as possible uh, to remove as much risk from the system as you can. So you might have not just one kind of collateral, but many different kinds of collateral. Um, and so you would manage those pieces of collateral, just as you would manage um, an investment portfolio, right? So you want the assets of that portfolio to um, be uncorrelated from each other as much as possible to reduce your exposure to any individual risk. So, so that's, that's the, one of the biggest um, benefits of being an uncorrelated asset is that you can help diversify array away risk. So like, as you said earlier, um, so much of, the digital asset ecosystem is very highly correlated with each other. So specifically very highly correlated with Bitcoin. So if Bitcoin goes up, you know, the other cryptocurrencies tend to go up, Bitcoin goes down, everything else tends to go down as well. So from the outside, um, if you were trying to manage the, your portfolio, um, it's, it's, you know, very, um, it's, it's a very good idea to have some sort of, crypto in there, right? So if I'm talking to my parents, for example, I might tell them to put, you know, 1% of their investments into Bitcoin because, you know, irrespective of what you think of a lot of the underlying philosophies that people in the space might have, one thing that is, does seem to be true is that Bitcoin is um, uncorrelated with traditional markets like stocks, bonds, commodities, that sort of thing. And so um, it's just uh, responsible to put maybe 1% of your portfolio into Bitcoin. Uh, but since everything else is so highly correlated with Bitcoin, it's hard to make the case that they should put anything more into anything else. Right? Ah. So if we had another digital currency that was um, similarly uncorrelated to other markets, but also not correlated to Bitcoin, then suddenly you have a second asset that's interesting, right? So this could, you know, uh, also unlock much more capital to be able to come into the space. So right now, for example, institutions are in interested in, in Bitcoin because it's uncorrelated, um, but they're not so interested in other assets beyond Bitcoin, I think for, for many reasons, but I think that's one of the big ones. I, I was just going to say that, that like, you know, it sounds like Ampleforth, the Ampleforth protocol can enable, um, you know, more institutional money to come in the space because now there's more 
you know, infrastructure or tools to hedge their risk. Whereas prior, I mean, there wasn't really. So that's, that's really cool. And I guess my other question here is like, so an ample, like one ample token today is worth like maybe 60 cents. Um, and the market cap is maybe like $900 million or somewhere around or $900,000, I think somewhere around there. Oh, I think it depends on whether you count the, um, the non-circulating tokens, or if you just look at the circulating tokens. Okay. So yeah, I was just looking at the circulating tokens times the current price. And I think that gets you to about 900,000. Um, and then the implied market cap is, uh, I, 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 I assume quite, quite more substantially larger than that. But my question is, is that if the, is the price of the token, and I know you can't make forward looking statements, not asking you to do that, but in theory and in practice, can the price go above a dollar? Um, it can. Yeah. So, um, we have a price target, but, um, we call it a target for a reason rather than a peg because there's no strict peg the way there is with, um, something like tether, for example. Um, so in systems like Tether or even um, other collateralized systems like MakerDAO, you know, uh, every token is a representation of some other backing asset. So um, if the Tether token were to deviate, so because one Tether token uh, corresponds to $1 sitting in some bank account somewhere, if the price of one Tether token uh, deviates from $1, if it went down to, you know, 90 or cents, then that would mean that something would be fundamentally broken with the system and you'd be very careful about using it, right? Um, whereas for us, we're not a collateralized system and so we don't have a strict peg. Instead, we have a soft target that is used as a guidepost for the system to make its decisions. And so we have a long-term equilibrium around the price target, but especially in the early days, while the system is new and finding its footing, uh, there's no guarantee that it will be strictly you know, the price target of $1. So right now, um, the price of one token in the market is around 60 cents. Um, this is, so this means that we're in a contractionary phase. Um, so the total, as long as we are below the target, then coins are being removed from the system. Um, and so ideally, eventually, uh, because the supply gets lower relative to the demand, then the price of an individual token will gradually start to approach the price target again. And so the price can go below the price target and the price can go above the price target. This is completely determined by the marketplace. Okay. So, so I guess, live, so in, it's better to be buying the tokens when they're under a dollar in, in the contractionary phase because the supply is being reduced and you're looking to acquire more, you know, by acquiring more tokens, you're acquiring a larger percentage of, of network ownership. Exactly. So, yeah, so related to that idea of network ownership, this is actually a really important property of Ampleforth is the fact that it is non-dilutive, right? So um, in the case of Bitcoin, for example, there's, uh, you know, a maximum of 21 million Bitcoin that will ever be created. So if you own one Bitcoin, then you always own one twenty-one millionth of the Bitcoin network. Uh, for Ampleforth, it's uh, very similar. So if you own 1% of the Ampleforth network today, then you will always own 1% unless you choose to um, buy or sell Ample tokens. Right? And, this, and is this is super important. Your... 
Um, exactly. So this means a lot of different things. So, so one is it means that Ampleforth is a, a sound money. We can get more into that later. Um, but two, it also means that um, it does impact the way you interact with the system as well. So when the price goes down, uh, when we're below the target, um, this means that you can acquire a greater percentage ownership for a smaller price. And so um, if you just you know, own apples and hold on to them, then you know that you're never going to be inflated away or devalued or anything like that. You're always going to own your same percentage of the network. Um, however, if you decide to um, interact more, more frequently with the marketplace, then uh, opportunities arise naturally from the system where, um, you know, in contraction or when the price is below the target, you have the opportunity to more cheaply acquire um, a greater percentage of the network. Similarly, when it's above the price target, you have the ability to, um, there's an arbitrage opportunity where you can, uh, you know, sell tokens at a favorable price to you as well. That's awesome. So yeah, so a lot of people are probably thinking like, you know, the non-dilutive versus the dilutive. So just as like an example, like during uh, times of like quantitative easing or uh, during times of, you know, money printing by the government, that is actually diluting your shares or diluting your ownership. Uh, if you think of the United States government as a network, right? It's, it's actually diluting that because you would maybe own, you know, $100 out of a total trillion dollars. And then they print another billion. So now you have still $100, but now it's out of, you know, 1.1 trillion. And so in yours, and that would be dilutive. And so non-dilutive uh, equals a sound hard money, whereas dilutive might equal, you know, easy money. So why don't we define uh, like what is sound money? Sure. Yeah. So sound money is, you know, one property that monetary assets can have. Um, I'd say it has different importance to different people depending on who you talk to. Um, so a lot of Bitcoin supporters or people who love gold, um, they're very strong advocates for sound money systems. Um, uh, uh, so what sound money is, is from the defense of, you know, civil liberties, personal liberties, personal property. Um, and a sound money, uh, no individual or entity has the ability to reduce the value of what you own, right? So um, in the current we have with in fiat with the U.S. dollar, um, we have the bank um, who you know, operate according to mandates, um, but they have the ability to, uh, you know, create or you know mint new money uh, and uh, inject that into the system. And so when that happens, the it might have various impacts on the economy, uh, but it also has an impact on the the dollars that you hold, right? So so people who are very uh, who care a lot about maintaining what they own, they tend to care. A a lot about sound money. Um, you know, uh, other people might say this is maybe less important. They care a little bit more about the health of the macro economy. Um, this can turn into sort of a religious debate uh, among different people, but it is a very interesting property and one that I think is very um, a good match for the digital currency ecosystem, which is so much about uh, maintaining uh, rights and you know personal property and ownership and that sort of thing. No, very well said. How often does the supply rebalance? And you say there's no central authority that can control anything, but there is a group of developers um, that are, you know, controlling the program that is minting all this stuff. So I kind of want to talk about like 
you know, first off, how does the supply get rebalanced? And second off, um, you know, how would you grade it on a scale of one to 10, you know, one being ultra centralized and 10 being, you know, ultra decentralized? Yeah, great question. Okay, so I'll start with, with um, first how the supply adjusts, and then I'll get into the governance and decentralization later. Um, so the supply adjusts um, once every, every day. So there's a particular time window um, that's enforced by the rules of the monetary policy on-chain. So every day at 2 a.m. UTC, which is uh, right now 6 p.m. Pacific time, or you can calculate you know, your local time from there. Um, the, we have a function that executes called rebase. And so this rebase, what it does is it reads the current value of the uh, consumer price index. And then it also takes in the current uh, price from the marketplace. This is, we use a 24 hour volume weighted average price. Um, and then it makes a determination about whether to increase decrease or maintain the same uh, token supply in circulation. Yeah, this happens once every 24 hours. Uh, you might assume that the more often we did this, the faster um, the price would respond and maybe go back to the price target quicker. Um, but uh, This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows granger has got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. That's not exactly true in practice just because we don't live in a world of completely efficient marketplaces. Uh, so the market needs time to incorporate the new information and then respond, right? So on the extreme case, if we adjusted every millisecond, then we would just expand forever or contract forever before anyone would have a chance to respond. And so that, so we chose 24 hours because it seemed like a good middle ground. It's on a time period that makes sense to, to you and I. 
Um, and so that's roughly how it works. Um, so in terms of uh, decentralization and how much power you know our team has, um, I'm not sure I can put a, a number on from zero to 10 for decentralization just because there's a number of aspects that are interesting to different people and different people might value certain things more than others. Um, so I can talk about what those aspects might be and you know, apply it to us as well. Yeah. Um, so uh, so the, the rebase function is a publicly callable function, so anyone can call that. So if we don't make that what does call, that mean? Um, anyone else can make so what So this is the function that triggers the supply adjustment. Right, so this is a publicly callable function on our smart contracts. So this is the code that, that exists on chain. Um, so uh, one interesting thing about um, Ethereum, which we're deployed on top of in uh, just about any smart contract platform, is that um, code can only execute when it's told to execute from the outside. Something can't just decide to start running; it has to be sort of poked from the outside, and so. Uh, um, in order to enact apply a change, we have to sort of nudge it a little bit. So we call this public function, this rebase function. Um, but uh, anyone else can call it, even if we don't. And so what it does, it removes us from that element of the system, which is kind of nice. Um, uh, the other aspect sort of uh, related to centralization is um, where we get our data from. So this is a problem that uh, is generally called the Oracle problem. So this is the idea of the Oracle problem is um, in order for many smart contracts to be useful in the way, at least one form of utility is um, interaction with the outside world. Um, in order for a smart contract to interact with the outside world, it needs to you know, get data from the outside world or make some sort of call outside world. Um, but a smart contract can't just magically make a call to the web server, for example. Um, and so an Oracle is meant to provide data from the outside world um, onto the blockchain system so it can be used uh, by the smart contracts. Um, so our Oracle system um, works very similarly to uh, MakerDAO's Oracle, if you're familiar with that. Um, so we have a whitelisted set of data providers um, that provide data um, that are aggregated together. So um, you know, you might have you know five different people who each say what the 24-hour price was of Ample, and then we take those five values and then we turn it into one value. And these are all just different exchanges. Um, yeah. So the data ultimately comes from the exchange because that's where the trading happens and where price discovery happens. And then there's a second group of people who gather data from exchanges and then provide it on chain. Oh, cool. Is uh, that like Chainlink? Yeah. Uh, yeah, so we actually work very closely with Chainlink. Uh, oh, we're cool. currently integrating with them right now. It should the first step of our integration should go live very soon, like within the next week or two. Uh, so we're we're really excited about that. This will help us decentralize the Oracle um, by uh, removing the necessity of us um, making us less important in the operation of the system. Do you have a friend who's interested in getting into cryptocurrency, but they don't know where to start building their portfolio? Well, we have the answer. It's called Copy Trader by eToro. With Copy Trader, you can automatically copy every trade of eToro's top crypto traders, just like myself or Bryce or Kevin, at the exact price point and in real time. No need to study up on markets or develop your own strategies. Simply just sign up and copy our trades. Any profits that we make, you do too. Proportional to your investment, of course. 
With eToro, you get access to the world's most popular cryptocurrencies with transparent trading fees all in one easy-to-use app. Copy the smart money with eToro. Join now at eToro.com slash crypto101. Thank you. So I, I kind of want to touch real quick on what you said about you know the rebase function is publicly callable so that anybody could call it. Like, What does that exactly mean? Does that mean that anybody could kind of vote for something or... Could you break that down a little bit more? Sure. Yeah. So uh, you can actually go to our website. And so uh, we have a dashboard, right? So if you go to ampleforth.org slash dashboard, um, as soon as the rebase window opens up, then a button appears. And so anyone who has a uh, you know Web3 wallet like MetaMask installed in their browser, they can click that button and then the rebase executes. Um, and so uh, all this does is it tells it to run. It doesn't um, allow anyone to provide any data. No one can say increase supply. No one can say decrease supply. Um, no one really has that ability, not even us. Um, so the rebase runs according to its logic. Um, and then it uses the value from the Oracle, um, which we try to decentralize as much as possible um, across as many different actors as possible. So if I have my coins in MetaMask, for instance, does it automatically every 24 hours at you know 2 a.m., does it automatically change or do I have to go call the function? Um, it does provided that someone somewhere in the world calls this function. Um, the number of coins in your wallet may change. You know, if we're in the equilibrium zone, then it will stay the same, but if we're in the um, expansion or contraction, then it will change. So it only needs to be called once for the entire world. It's not the case that every user needs to call this function. Um, so far, I think we've only been the one to execute the rebase operations. Um, although, um, I think, you know, maybe just this week, uh, Chainlink uh, beat us. So they were able to execute the rebase call before we were able to. <laughs> um, so, so we're already seeing this you know, happen. They're quick over there. Uh, I know yeah, those guys. Sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, you know, what kind of market conditions are Ample's designed to work optimally in? Um, and, and by work optimally, I kind of mean like appreciate in price while maintaining still like a degree of non-correlation. Does that make sense? Um, yeah. So I, I guess that would mean like expansionary. Have, yeah. So this might mean different things to different people at different times. So if what you care the most about is appreciation, then I think um, that would mean an extended period of time above the price target, you know, meaning that there's more demand for the supply in aggregate. And so we're increasing. And so as long as we're increasing, and as long as you maintain the same percentage ownership, then the value of your holdings also increase. Um, so in the early days, this might be more likely just because we were starting out um, such, with such a low market cap. You know, So we've been live um, for reference about four months. So we launched in June. And so we still view ourselves as being very early um, as a project. Uh, um, so to others who care about diversification, then um, working optimally would just mean that it moves differently or, or according to a different pattern than uh, Bitcoin or other digital assets or other traditional assets do. Um, so this would just be a, a sort of price history that has a low correlation to, to other assets. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Have you... Let's see. So it, it, it readjusts the supply every 24 hours. Has it always been that way? 
Uh, it has. So it's been every 24 hours um, since the beginning. Um, so uh, this is controlled by, let's see. Yeah, so we have a very small number of hyperparameters. These are sort of tuning knobs that allow us to adjust the system. Uh, um, but it's a very small number. Um, so uh, these, so for example, if you look at the the central bank, the U.S. Uh, central bank, um, they have a few knobs at their disposal. Um, you know, they they target certain interest rates in order to balance the sort of size of the market. Uh, similarly, you know, MakerDAO has their interest rates that they tune on a weekly basis based off of votes in order to balance the the demand for uh, getting loans. You know, CDPs versus demand for their stablecoin DAI. Um, for us, we similarly have a small number of parameters, but these parameters are slightly different in the sense that these are not concerned with balancing the market. Um, all these do is change the speed at which the system balances, if that makes sense. So I think this is actually a very important distinction um, because it means that Ampleforth as a whole is much more automatic. There is less room for discretion, less room for people to... Uh, control or tinker with the market dynamics. So the parameters control things like um, how long is it between the win the rebase windows. So right now it's every 24 hours. How long is that window? Right now, uh, you know, there's a 20 minute window in which the rebase operation can run once. Um, there's also what we call a lag parameter. This is um, a sort of smoothing parameter that um, keeps us from overcorrecting. So right now. Now we have a lag parameter of 10. This does is it targets roughly uh, you know 10 days for a correction. So um, if we were you know trading at $1.50 versus the target of a dollar um, on the first day, you know if we had a completely efficient marketplace, it means that we would need to you know increase supply by roughly 50% in order to get there. Uh, but of course. You know, we don't live in a perfectly efficient market. Uh, the quantity theory of money, so to speak, doesn't you know hold necessarily in the short term, um, and so we reduce our adjustments by a factor of ten. That's what that lag parameter means, and so we don't do increase or decrease the cost of, of loans or anything like that. Um, this is just um, a system that's much more automatic, much less like a bank, and much more like a natural resource. So, so that's our goal here: is we don't want to necessarily recreate a bank with bankers, you know, back behind it who are controlling or, or turning knobs. Right. We want something that's much closer to gold, much closer to a commodity money. Awesome, and yeah, it's like gold is decentralized because there is nobody that can, you know, control necessarily like how much of gold there is. I mean, I guess the only thing is, is like people could just put more mining operations up at the same time, but commodity money is pretty cool. I like that. Um, for sure. Yeah. There's lots of really interesting qualities around commodity money um, that you can, you know, spend a long time talking about if you want to go way off into the weeds. Yeah. Um, yeah so there's no like central gold miner. Oh, sure. So, um, uh, so one thing is that there's no governing authority that controls the mining of gold. So there are lots of different uh, you know, mining companies that may increase or decrease, you know, their mining operations. So there's there's some amount of countercyclical operations sort of built in, right? So if the price of gold is high, then it makes sense to spend a little bit more into uh, mining operations and employment, that sort of thing, to mine more gold faster. Um, you might see you know stocks of gold that are not used for money, 
turned into monetary stocks of gold. So there's a little bit of elasticity in there. Um, and so, you know, these sort of counter cyclical pressures are great qualities of money. Um, but the gold producing section of the economy is so small that the counter cyclical pressure is very, very slight. Right. So, um, you know, if you look at, you know, fiat, for example, a lot of people who support fiat systems, they love um, that it's very good at providing these counter cyclical pressures for the global economy because they have, you know, open market operations that can just directly impact it. So, sorry, I was just going to say, this is probably a broad question, but, you know, you, we, we keep saying counter cyclical, but what is the cycle that is trying to be countered? Yeah. So uh, one thing that's just sort of naturally the case in any economy is that there's just natural business cycles that take place. Um, you know, with the one vertical, you know, uh, the the market for computer chips might go crazy for a couple of years and then the demand might uh, dry up for a couple of years. Right. So this is it happens to different degrees, to different parts of the economy. But even in the global macro economy, you see, you know, boom cycles and you see bust cycles happen so often that people call these bull markets and bear markets. Um, uh, so this is sort of a natural occurrence. In, and so um, a, a good system would be, um, you know, no matter where this lives, something that can sort of dampen those cycles uh, to lessen the impact on, you know, you and me on, on workers and that sort of thing that, you know, that's roughly speaking what counter cyclical pressures mean. Love it. Awesome. So, well, I still have you for a, a few more minutes here. Um, I kind of want to get your take on, on Ethereum in the sense that, you know, why did you specifically choose to build on top of that protocol, that platform? And that's the first question. And then, you know, what do you wish that it had that it doesn't have? Sure. I think, so I think before I answer the why Ethereum question, I would say there's a question before that called, uh, why didn't we build our own chain at all to begin oh, with? Oh, perfect. Um, that's so, that's even a be- um, an even better question. <laughs> uh, right. Yeah. So so the first question, if you're starting out a project like Ampleforth, is um, do you build your own chain? And if so, like how is it designed? Um, you know, Bitcoin is its own chain. Same with Monero and Zcash um, and many others. So there's many different, you know, uh, layer one blockchains out there right now. So we could have gone the similar path. Um, instead, we decided... Uh, to not build our own chain. And the biggest reason I think is that we approach this, the problem first from the angle of economics and then second from the angle of, you know, infrastructure. So, so given the choice between being on our own chain or being on other chains, I think we'd much rather be on other chains and actually just as many chains as possible, right? We'd rather be everywhere rather than in our own silo. Um, So long-term, we would love for Ample tokens to exist on every blockchain um, where anyone is storing value or making transactions. Um, and so, so I think that, so that's how we landed on not building our own chain, you know, so we could in theory, uh, you know, make use of the best parts of lots of different chains. So some chains are more decentralized like Ethereum. Some chains are less decentralized, but have higher throughput, you know, like EOS. And so if we could exist on both Ethereum and EOS, for example, then you can get the best of both worlds depending on your needs at the time as a user. Um, and so uh, right now we are deployed on top of Ethereum. So um, our Oracle system, our monetary policy, and our token all exist on the Ethereum platform. Um, we chose Ethereum for a few reasons. So one is it's the most developed. 
um, has the most number of users. There's the most number of uh, tools in the ecosystem uh, to it makes it very easy to work with. Um, uh, so that made it very natural to build on top of Ethereum. Uh, we liked that it was very decentralized. Um, and then lots of other applications also exist on top of Ethereum. So if we want to um, work uh, along with other applications in the space, you know, for example, so DeFi is um, a really exciting area right now. So there's lots of great DeFi applications like lending platforms that also exist on Ethereum. And so if we exist there also, then we can plug into those. Sounds like network effects are crucial. <laughs> uh, for sure. Yeah. So right now, even if a new layer one blockchain were to launch, um, even if it were exactly like Ethereum in every way, but it had higher transactions per second, for example, I think it would still be hard for that platform to compete with Ethereum just because of um, how mature Ethereum is and how many network effects exist on that platform. Yeah, it'd really be an uphill battle. I, I see a lot of these layer ones launching and just an uphill battle. Yeah, you know, also Ethereum continues to develop too. So today it might have, um, I don't know how many transactions per second it does. It's, you know, still pretty small. If you look at it, it's like 11 or something like that. Uh, you know, that could increase over time as they move to Ethereum 2.0, add, you know, layer twos or uh, sharding and that sort of, sort of thing. Um, and so Ethereum as a platform also is kind of a moving target. So just because they might lack in some, you know, throughput features today, doesn't mean they will forever. But this is something that the Ethereum project needs to prove out through, you know, continued execution on on their goals and on their roadmap. 100%. Yeah, I'm excited for this whole uh, Ethereum 2.0 launch here. Uh, I think it's next, like I know they're phasing it in little by little. I think Istanbul launches sometime this month and then some stuff going on in January and throughout the year. And sooner or later, we're going to have Ethereum 2.0. How do you feel about all that stuff? Um, it's, it's I'd be kind of scared. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it is. So there's, there's good and bad, right? So, um, you know, you know, this technology is so new, it's still very much on the cutting edge of development. So if you build on top of these platforms, you do have to um, just uh, assume there's going to be a certain amount changing underneath you. So um, in one of the recent forks, the the gas cost, so the, the price of certain operations uh, changed. So um, there's some that got way more expensive that related to storage of data on Ethereum. Um, the huge problems for other projects in the space where they had to either, you know, completely redesign their system. Some even thought about having to move to other platforms because they may not be able to execute the way they thought. Um, but it also means that we have the promise of, you know, future development, higher speed, higher throughput, and that sort of thing. Um, so Ethereum 2.0, I think is super exciting. Um, I, I, I really would like to see them uh, with proof of stake. Uh, be successful um, just if for no other reason than uh, the impact on the ecology, you know, like proof of work has some nice properties around utilization, that sort of thing. Uh, but you can't say that it's efficient with its use of energy. Right. Um, and so if we could reduce the energy requirements of these systems, I think that would be a great thing to have. Uh, I think it's, it's still something that needs to be proven out um, at, at scale, uh, but I'm excited for that to happen. And then just general development of, you know, sharding uh, to increase the throughput, I think can help Ethereum a lot. 
Amazing. So you have Ampleforth. It's all ready. It's rocking and rolling. What are the near-term goals for your development team? Um, since you have this thing, it's already kind of living on its own. What else is there to do? Yeah. So one fun thing about, about our project is that when we launched, um, all the core value proposition of the project was there, right? So we had the token, we had the monetary policy, we had the automatic supply adjustments. Um, that was all running from um, and so what we're focused on now as a team is uh, a few things. Um, so I think the biggest priorities now are um, to act, to access as many new pools of liquidity as possible. So for example, exchanges or lending platforms, things like that, um, to you know expand our reach and let more people interact with the system who want to. Um, and then a second high priority is uh, just, you know, telling people what we're about and what we're trying to do and why we think it's cool um, because we're a pretty new system. I think the more people hear about us, they, the more they tend to like it. Um, it is a bit of a brain teaser when you first hear it. And so you might be a little confused at first, but we found that, you know, a couple of days later when we talk to people again, then it sort of clicks um, and they seem to like it a lot more. Um, and so, yeah, just sort of outreach and just talking to as many different people like, like you is, is possible. And then also, you know, we're big fans of the DeFi space, the centralized finance. Um, and so we want to, you know, get access to those platforms as well, um, because that also, you know, uh, gives more people new ways to interact with the system, which also just, you know, is good for the overall health. Sounds awesome. You guys are doing all the right stuff. Um, and I completely second uh, your statement there that the first time you hear it, you're like, kind of your head's cockeyed and you're like, what's going on? But then you, you know, you read through some of your documentation, you watch some videos. You, I listened to some of your previous podcasts. I'm like, oh my God, this is fucking genius. And how has this not been done before? So guys, if you're listening out there, you, you good citizens of Crip Nation and you're like a little confused, don't be dejected. You guys just keep diving in and it, it will all make sense uh, here very soon. Oh yeah. And I'd love to uh, plug our website. Uh, we have a lot of great content on there uh, that we wrote specifically for people to read. So ideally it's supposed to be very understandable and it walks you through sort of our thinking process from you know, first principles. Um, we call it the red book. And so there's a couple of different, you know, short entries in there that you can just sort of step through and, and read. Um, highly recommend it if you're interested at all. No, yeah, I I, uh, I completely rec recommend that as well. I kind of glanced through it, and it has a lot of just like economics one hundred and one type content in there. So it's not it, it feel it doesn't feel like it's you know promotional or anything. It's actually just purely educational. So everybody that ha that book absolutely has my endorsement. It's free. Ampleforth.org. You guys got to check it out. It's super sick. Um, the last couple questions we're gonna ask you. These are just some fun questions, just to get some insight into who you are as a person and what motivates you. Um, and they're questions that we ask every single guest that comes on the show. Um, you know, of all the amazing people that are in the space, who is one person that has made a profound impression on you um, and maybe changed the way you think, changed the way you work, something like that? Uh, good question. Uh, who, who would I choose? It's a tough one. I mean, so the obvious one, and I'm sure everyone one says this or at least thinks it first is uh you know satoshi the the author of the first bitcoin white paper um so uh, one you know making you know fundamental contribution to decentralized computation and with its proof of work you know consensus algorithm um 
super incredible. The fact that this person or group of people, uh, we don't know anything about him or her, you know, uh, didn't try to um, do this for any uh, like personal gain, so to speak. You know, they did it under a pen name. Um, uh, as far as we can tell, you know, all of those Genesis blocks have, you know, Bitcoin and those Genesis blocks haven't moved. And so the sort of, um, uh, the way that the first system came to the world says a lot about the underlying reasons for some people to get into the space. Um, so I think, you know, that's obviously a, a big one. Um, uh, I think, I think Vitalik, uh, has actually done an amazing job developing the community and ecosystem around Ethereum. And he deserves a lot of props for that because that's a very difficult thing to do. Um, so whether you agree with a lot of his thinking or his ideals, I think one thing you definitely have to, um, give him props for is the way he's been able to, uh, bring people and draw people into the ecosystem and feel excited and invested in the space. Yeah, he's such a an inspiring fellow considering he's probably only 25 or 26 years old and has already accomplished so much and handles so much, you know, controversy and handles so much of the research and, you know, just a really impressive guy. So, I'm glad that you uh shouted out Vitalik and and the last question I have for you is, you know, again, a lot of times people are tuning in. This is the very first podcast that they've ever listened to in crypto. Maybe their head is spinning. But what is just one word of advice that you could give uh, give the audience here of, you know, you know how to how to think of crypto or how to stay safe in crypto or just one word of wisdom? Um, yeah. So I guess first I would say um, take it slow. It's a very deep space. You can find lots of rabbit holes to get lost in. Um, uh, some people dive in headfirst and put way too much money into the market. So don't do that. <laughs> yes, um, please you know, do not do don't, that. Don't pour more than you're willing to lose into anything. Um, uh, aside from that, I would say um, lots. there are lots of different people in this space and they, they all approach it from different angles. And so um, you might talk to one person with one perspective, another person from a completely different perspective with completely different goals. Um, and they might even seem like they come from different worlds completely. Um, so uh, I would say try to figure out the high level um, groups or narratives in the space. Um, you know, some people might approach it technology first. Some people might be more focused on monetary economics. Some people might be more focused on finance and portfolio construction. Some people might be more focused on, um, you know, the web three decentralizing the web, you know, disintermediate, disintermediating Google or Facebook. Um, some people might be more interested in how to build um, DAOs, decentralized organizations. They're, they care a lot about, you know, global coordination problems. Um, so what makes the space so interesting is that all these different worlds collide in one space, um, which makes the everything very dynamic, but also makes communication sometimes difficult because everyone's using different language. <laughs> so I would say, um, uh, you know, try and figure out which one of these resonates the most with you. Um, maybe start there and uh, you know, talk to as many people as you can, read as much as you can about the space to get a good foothold. Um, and then you know, try to figure out you know what the different narratives are. So some ideas might be big for a year and then disappear. Some I think are everlasting. So um, when we designed Ampleforth and we started the project, we designed it hoping that it would outlast any of us individuals on the team. Um, and so that's a big motivation for us. Um, and so I think just uh, take it slow and follow what your interest interest is because uh, there's a lot to chase down if you want to. 
freaking brilliant. Thank you so much. Uh, for actually, thank you very much for going overtime with me here. Um, this is one of my favorite conversations that we've that we've had on the show. And yeah, thanks you, man. This was this was really awesome. I really appreciate. Awesome, it. that's great to hear. It was it was fun. Those were great questions, by the way. Thank you. They, and we'll we'll be talking soon. I, I guarantee it. Sounds good. Have a good one. You too. Crip Nation, just a friendly neighborhood reminder to go to www.crypto2020summit.com and register for your free conference pass to the online summit, Crypto 2020 Summit. We got 60 speakers who are giving their bold predictions for prices and bold predictions for uh, technological developments in this crazy crypto space. So if you want to be the first to know the big news and you want to make sure that you're in touch and in tune, go to Crypto2020Summit.com right now and register for free. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.